0: Shooting war! Shooting war! Shooting war!
1: Shooting war! Shooting war. Shootin war!
2: Welcome to the first ever for Shooting Wall, the revolutionary cinematic organization. This episode of the podcast, we have a review of Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, a review of Michael Winterbottom's The Trip, and a review of Earl Morris's Tabloid. We also will round out our podcast with audio from our last show-and-tell event, where we discussed Oshima's film, Boy, Before we begin, I would like to let you guys know about our upcoming events. Film theory without action is meaningless. We are having our third screening at Filter Cafe on August 30th at 7.30pm. Filter is at 331 Race Street. We are going to be playing short films by cherished auteurs. Hal Hartley, Chantal Ackerman, Ulrich Ottinger, Zha Zhang Ke, and many more. We're also going to be having a film theory reading group of the essay Towards a Third Cinema that's going to be August 26th at 5.30pm at Last Drop Coffee Shop, 1300 Pine Street. The third issue of our print zine is going to be out in September. If you're an artist who for some reason does artwork outside of film, please email us at shootingwallzine at gmail.com. Go to shootingwall.com. And click on About to subscribe to our mailing list. In September, we're going to have some surprise events for the debut of our Issue 3. The mailing list will let you know about those and all our future events. Also, make sure you're subscribed to our blog, shootingwall.blogspot.com. We are now updating it daily. Follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. Theorists, cinephiles, and or filmmakers, please join us. Email shootingwallzine at gmail.com. Now it's time for our first ever podcast. The first segment of this podcast is a review of Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. It was done at the Bryn Mawr Film Institute. You can check them out at www.brynmawr.org. They're not the best theater, but they do get classic films every once in a while, so check out their webpage. I work there, and I also work there with fellow shooting wall comrade Jonathan Seidman. My co-workers are comedy fans, and we discussed Alan's film, and then later in the podcast you'll hear us discussing comedy in 2011. I now will introduce my co-workers. John, say who you are. John Sidman. What do you do at Shooting Wall? Um, you're uh, head of you're in the PR department, and you're an editor. Do right. so you do the Twitter? Right. You.
0: Um, now's last Dancer.
2: All right, and uh, <laughs> that's uh, his name. Uh, don't see the movie. <laughs> I I saw it like 30 times. It's great.
3: John.
2: John uh Kingston. And um, so I say your name. so I have to say. You're name. We're doing this after, and then um, my name is. Uh, It's not important. KT. KT. What does that even stand for? (laughs) 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 Carl Transmarverfire. Um. So Woody Allen's like the best filmmaker ever. What do you guys think about that? He's, He's good. Robert Muggy is the uh, resident uh, Woody Allen expert here. I guess you've seen more Woody Allen films than I've seen. Uh, what did You've you think? Seen what, two? Yeah, I've seen about two. <laughs> what do you think about, um, I guess I've seen about maybe five or six, but uh, he's made about, what, like he's 50? I've seen
0: more than 40-something.
2: I've seen all his earlier know. stuff, and then I kind of stopped and I like, seem to see his re- more recent stuff. You seen how, how many has he made? have definitely seen more than six. He's,
0: seen about, he's made about 47, I guess, now. Oh, sure. God. How
2: many of them have you seen? Like 30. Oh, my God. So, thought his 40th movie. Was it? It's 40th, no so no, you've no. seen 90, it seems like there's 85% of this.
0: Yeah, the movie used to be, he was just into, like, the Sunshine Boys and... The, the Front. The, the Front, right. the Ants. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking masterpiece there.
2: So, uh... I mean, that yeah. film's about communism, it is. right? Yeah. Is, the, uh, is Ants about it the, ant. the class struggle? Yeah, it's about the class struggle oh, right
0: between, to like, it, the yeah. Ants yeah. I <laughs> use It's like a big British Ant, like, Greg... Your Greg Bro character, you know, that you play in that film that nobody's gonna see, because it doesn't exist, really. Because nothing exists.
2: I mean that's that's where this that's where this podcast is going, really. It's like, what's the point of talking about anything when there's no point to anything, right? Yeah, who
0: needs cameras when there's something to film?
2: Um. So, but in terms of uh, Midnight in Paris, where did that was that rank on your your guys Woody Allen best of all time list? Um. Or best Woody Allen list film list. Where's it ranked for you? Mean you mean
0: out of thirty something films I've seen? Yeah, where does it rank for you
2: on that list? <laughs> Dualism. Uh, list right you were now. saying you were saying it's very similar to <laughs> some of his other films. You said it was like this it's kinda like harkens back to a style he was doing in like the nineties or something like that?
0: Oh like, was like the mid eighties with um wasn't one like, Mia Farrow after probably Danny Rose. You performed Rose Cairo. So it's, it's sort of a it's the whimsical Allen. Yeah. This is the whimsical Woody you also, Allen. He also wrote a short story where a character goes inside of a book, and then the book begins to be rewritten as he does things differently in the book. So there's a lot of elements that are just ever
2: throughout his other films. So, but but this, what did you guys just? Did you guys enjoy this movie? Did you guys think it's like a great film, like the best of the year so far?
0: I haven't seen as many movies as you this
2: here but it's, you know. Like, in terms of comedy, though, I, I did think it was really, really funny. I think that the, the one thing I liked about it was very good writing. Like, when the, uh, uh, every time the father character came in, it was always as Owen Wilson's character was leaving. I thought that was, like, a funny kind of, like, Marx Brothers type of style. Like, that was good comedy writing. Yeah. Um, but also just, yeah, I mean, in terms of his comedy films, I mean, whatever works, he does do a lot of long takes. He's always He always does a lot of long takes, but I thought this one had... Had just some interesting tracking shots, um, yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah. Would you guys recommend the film to people to see? Is it something people should run out and see? Yeah, I, mean,
0: I do. do recommend it every day. Yeah, yeah, it's also in theaters. Not compared to like his older films, but it's good.
2: <laughs> yeah, basically just uh, don't just go in the back door and see it but yeah, then don't, what yeah, other we'll Woody Allen money. movie would you suggest? To this just fuck more children.
4: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't
2: say that on your podcast. Yeah. No, this is what, what, <laughs> have you seen what we write in shooting? Well, it's very violent. Um, we yeah, love, we love raping children. children. So when we yes. rape children, well, that how's that connect with cinema? Well. No, but what, what Woody Allen do? movie, what Woody Allen on movie, on well, well, you, if, it, if so. you guys could pick out three Woody Allen movies people should watch also before they go see Midnight in Paris, what would you guys say?
0: As preparation, commitment.
2: Yeah, just so you can, there's people haven't seen all his movies, and he has a lot of stuff that I think that people haven't seen. Like, what's some of the more, like, everyone's seen Manhattan like Andy Hall, but what's some other stuff that's good that he's done that people don't really run out and see too much? Well, the Purple Rose of Cairo. Um, Purple Rose of Cairo? Um,
0: everyone says I Love You is, you. you can't really find that, though. Everyone says I Love You is musical. You could probably
2: find it on a torrent okay, site. And, um, Stardust Memories. Stardust Memories is a. Uh, yeah. What what do you like about Surgis sort of Memories? I think that's an uh, interesting film that he made. I think a lot of people feel like, why does Woody Allen not do what he used to do? I mean, copies Fellini? Yeah. mean? Fellini Bergman? I think the thing about him is he, he copies Fellini and Bergman, but still, it's still a Woody Allen movie. Well, yeah. I mean, but that movie's so obviously a, a Fellini movie. film, but... Uh, yeah, I
0: never watch it and think it's a Fellini film, but it's clearly eight and a half.
2: <laughs> but, like, with Woody Allen, so it's like... Eight and a half, is like this, like brooding, it masculine. What's
0: missing from eight and a half is yeah, you know, okay. small Jewish. Man. That's what yeah. Woody Allen does. He improves upon directors. I haven't found there, <laughs> there are a few yet on life.
2: Yeah, Bergman and Fellini just didn't it, know what they were doing. He and... didn't get
0: it. Yeah, but Woody Allen, he just comes in there and he knows what he's doing. So he fixes it for him. Just like in uh, Midnight in Paris, when he tells Ben Well how to make that film about the people that can't leave a room. Do
2: you know the exterminating what angel? that. We now go into a review of Michael Winterbottom's The Trip with key leaders in shooting wall, Joshua Martin and Carrie Love.
5: Uh, this is Joshua Martin and Carrie Love. And we're going to be talking about uh, The Trip uh, by Michael Winterbottom and Tabloid uh, by Errol Morris. All right, so we'll start with The Trip uh, by Michael Winterbottom. Uh, we'll kind of you know forget about summaries or whatever if people can read about it. Uh, I guess it is a um, It's a shortened version of a BBC miniseries uh, with Steve Coogan. Um, and I guess general thoughts, I like this movie, actually. I liked it quite a bit. It's one of the funnier movies I think I've seen in a while. Um, I guess I find Michael Winterbottom to be a bit of a schizophrenic director. I think he intentionally so, but like last summer he came with The Killer Inside Me, which I thought was absolute crap. Uh, and then this film was sort of a delight compared to that. Um, funny, uh, but also dark uh, in a lot of ways, but maybe helped the humor. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people talk about it being somewhat indulgent. It's just kind of these two comedians doing, uh, you know, impressions back and forth. But call me a sucker, but I find it kind of funny. Um, sucker. Uh, <laughs> Uh I mean I'm I'm curious to see the longer version but I actually kind of felt that the shortened truncated version was probably a little bit tighter than a longer version would have been I don't really know I haven't seen it I can't say um but I feel like maybe they were able to get in everything that needed to be got in so I did I like that and uh, you know typical of winter bottom it's not particularly flashy filmed very flashily Uh, It's very gray, very, you know, northern England in the winter, uh, which I like. Uh, But, I mean, I guess the biggest thing you can say about the movie is the two performers. They're funny. They're good. They play off each other well. Um, Anyway, I'll let Carrie say something now.
6: So, I generally uh, did like the film, and I kind of like to think about it in relationship to other types of film like this that really focus on a male-male relationship, specifically perhaps men who kind of grew up together, came of age together, and now at sort of really different points in their lives. Um, Of course, that means Steve Coogan is playing sort of his part of his normal character, which is the desperately seeking something, lasting, romantic uh, male character. But he's very good at that character, and he knows how to have just the right amount of humor and you know, longing for uh, a real relationship. Um, I also like to think about it in relation to movies about food um, and sort of thinking about the dining experience as a similar thing to, like, the movie-going experience, which is that, you know, you, like, invite people with you who you think will enjoy it, you know, who perhaps have the same taste as you figuratively and, and literally, And, um, you know, then you're sort of reflecting on other things over the food or like what we do at Shooting Wall, reflecting on other issues that come about through film. So I I really enjoyed it. And of course, I really enjoyed it seeing Northern England in the fall on a hot Philadelphia day. Um, That was really refreshing.
5: Uh, And also, I guess, to touch on some of those points, I do think, in a way, the kind of storyline of two friends, old friends going on a, you know, trip together and, you know, sort of food tasting, like if you think about, let's say, like Sideways or something, I guess maybe it's a somewhat similar, not exactly the same, but a film like Sideways, which is so cheesy and so incredibly um, cliched in every way, and this film kind of just really dispenses with that and kind of meanders and just lets the comics just kind of make fun of each other and just kind of go on these long kind of almost, I mean, I guess you could say digressions of, you know, impressions or what somebody would say at somebody else's funeral or something. I think it's a very much a, it's, it's more so than a lot of the films we talk about shooting wall less of a director's film and more, I think of a comedian's film. I think the director intentionally is sort of tries to stay kind of laid back in this affair. And I think Winterbottom, I think he works best when he does that. He always works best with Kugin, I think, because he kind of lets him do his thing, uh, which he's good at, um, which is why I think his dramas, Winterbottom's dramas really suffer because he's just not, I don't know. There's something weird about him, I find. I don't, I don't like him that much. But I feel like if he just has, like, two guys, two comedians talking, it usually works out okay. Anytime he brings women into it, he's... Kind of usually off, I always find
6: uh, comedians or people who are comfortable doing comedy attempting dramas often doesn't turn out exactly right. Yeah. very few people who I think do both really well, um but all in all, it was enjoyable and um yeah,
5: yeah i I think it's the funniest movie I've seen so far this year, and that's not necessarily saying a lot. It hasn't been a lot I of haven't good
6: seen the change up yet <laughs>
5: Well it's nice to see some it's nice to see an art house comedy, I guess. You don't see too many of them. Uh, that are really that are kind of really funny. So uh, I think overall Carrie and I both would recommend the trip if you can still see it. I would like to actually I would actually like to see the longer version.
2: Now it's time to show your allegiance to shooting Wall. Make sure you're following us on Twitter. Twitter.com slash shootingwall. Friend us on Facebook. Just search shooting wall. You can also join our email list shootingwall.com/about.aspx, and make sure you subscribe to our blog. Just go to our page, and you can see a place to enter in your email on the right side of the page. We're not going to be updating daily. We now return to the Primar Film Institute with my coworkers and fellow Shooting Wall member Jonathan Seidman. We are going to just have a general discussion about the best comedy films of 2011. We're lacking a lot of theory here, but I'll make up for that with a short tirade post our discussion. The trip is one of the, uh... <laughs> is like, where does that fit in the comedy year? What, what has been good comedy-wise this year? I saw super. Cedar Rapids. Oh, yeah, Super. super Do you want to give a little 30-second explanation of why you like Super?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> I said it there. Um, <laughs>
2: John Kingston is. Uh, it comes
0: out next Tuesday, so we'll all watch it.
2: I'm so not where's it coming Super for you. It's nice it's out? It's on DVD.
0: It's
2: on DVD next yeah. Tuesday. So um, it's like now, but
0: whatever. And we'll get
2: it. But yeah, I, I saw so parts of Super. Um, it's funny because once again, it's one of those films where the main character isn't, isn't lovable, which I think is okay. A lot of a lot of comedy films now, you have to like have this lovable oaf or something, and it's, it's okay to have a comedy like, film. What we really
0: said there was like a long scene of him just crying saying like everybody looks at me and laughs and like it's really it's really It's a really like moment. a yeah, yeah, like a and cathartic I just like I was watching a larger version of that watching the beer.
2: Does uh what else is good though comedy wise this year other than The Trip is like definitely fitting in my top surprised. 3. Um we firebombed <laughs> several of those theaters. We're taking blame for that. Prisoners. we're the we're the, <laughs> the cinema al-Qaeda. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we used rape children in anger. Does, um watch the Smurfs? Uh, that's what uh, Andre Bazin was really saying with his, with his film theory. <laughs> that was just capture children and force make feed the them the our our erect cinema members. Um, make them watch, watch the Smurfs. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> rape them while you show them the Smurfs. So the um, Some horrible bosses. That was okay. Yeah, what was I up with that, that, that movie? movie? I heard it was a, funny. Yeah. What was who's in that?
0: Jason Bateman, Charlie Day. Was it... What was
2: C- the, uh... Jimmy Fox. Jimmy, Jimmy Fox was really funny.
0: Anyway. Oh, that's interesting, okay. I,
2: I mean... The- it, it came out, like, it, no one... It, like, I didn't even hear about it. Someone just told me about it recently. I was like, wait, that came out? Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, the same, as well. same. I saw Cedar Rapids. Rapid. you guys see that? Or what no, 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 it, okay. it was called? It wasn't... It was just, like, a solid movie. It was not amazing or anything. It like. But, uh... Bad it was okay, bad Timberland teacher. Justin Timberlake. Oh, why did you see
0: bad, <laughs> bad? No, because bad teacher <laughs> was actually all right. It was like a lesser version of bad Santa. Just, so when, and Justin Timberlake was the best part. Justin Timberlake was greatest. Yeah, he's yeah, actually a really good actor. Looking, he's not bad. He's yeah. talented. Yeah, yeah. And he was, I just don't like that. Moment. I was just like ready to hear. Cameron really, Diaz. She's a terrible actor.
2: Cameron Diaz a good is a uh, she's,
0: she's good in the cinema. It was going good in... Sure. Nelman, she was good oh, yeah. in I forget was, that. Something about yeah. Mary? Something about Mary? At yeah. So what's the verdict on CD?
2: What's CD?
0: Cameron Diaz. Oh, I think they meant like some kind of mirror. Yay character. or nay? <laughs> she could. I, I like her. Fuck her. She I, like her she, okay, she... I like her. Fuck it. She was hot. Okay, I. I. we attractive. like Cameron
2: Diaz. Fuck it. Like um, still anything else, else other than it's good? The Trip, and then... What's another... There's definitely another film.
0: All Fast that this year is yeah. that good I didn't see it <laughs> nobody no. saw that probably <laughs> yeah.
2: what else is it we're thinking we're getting something there's another, I
0: just go to Wikipedia oh, okay. film um, 2011
2: comedy. we should have done research but there it was, was some sequel <laughs> comedy sequel The Hangover too Oh, that was
0: pretty good it's the same d- shit over but it was dark <laughs> <laughs> I
2: don't know but <laughs> it's not as, I, didn't see it. I think the problem with yeah. I can just remember out uh, uh, this year. It there's a the the problem part part. with The Hangover and then Cedar Rapids I'm assuming with Bad Teacher I haven't seen that is that they're, like, solid, but there's, like, nothing groundbreaking comedic. There's nothing, like,
0: memorable. Yeah.
2: Great comedies,
0: great. I was talking about this with uh, somebody the other day, that, like, really great comedies that stick to your memory have, like, almost, like, a musical flow to them. And no comedies today really have that. Just a bunch of guys yeah. who look exactly alike, hanging out in a room, all talking exactly alike.
2: That's was really Hot great. Tub Time Machine like that at all? or yeah. That'd be sarcastic. Well,
0: no, I mean It, it was, was kind of funny. It was, so, it was funny. It was so no, I'm, so I'm not funny.
2: saying these movies aren't... Uh, and yeah, I enjoy like, them, a, I'm just like... A couple
0: of laughs. I don't it, walk but, out of the theater like,
2: like, have this revelation, like remember it's, it's remember like this, these, yeah. I think we all agree with
0: Brian De Palma and Quentin Tarantino that John Travolta to be in more movies. <laughs>
6: should he,
2: should the should two two comedies, Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris and Michael Winterbottom's The Trip. We lacked a lot of theory with my co-workers, but I was just trying to get at what I basically thought was the best comedy writing of the year. Modern comedies as a sole genre fail to utilize the tools that cinema has at its disposal. If you think Holland Brothers or Boogie Nights by Paul Thomas Anderson, there's surely comedy there. But comedy as a genre into itself is incredibly lacking and it could totally use uh, the utilization of cinematic devices to make the really what is an escapist genre... Uh, more heightened and get at really what comedy is about So definitely you should check out a film called Limelight by Charlie Chaplin I think it's the what funny people uh, failed miserably in trying to obtain. I also think that you should check out a film called World's Greatest Dad by Bobcat Goldfleet. I feel that uh, there's definitely a cinematic uh, push there that is lacking in most comedy films We now go into a review of Earl Morris's Tabloid by Joshua Martin
5: and Carrie Love uh, tabloid. Uh, again, we will dispense with you know any kind of plot summary because first of all, it's too complicated to <laughs> to go into here uh, and uh, you can read about it on your own, but um, I think uh, I again, I like this film and I do recommend it i I'll say i've seen I've seen quite a few Arrow Morris. I know Carrie hasn't seen any have you seen oh, others yeah. only a few. Uh, I'll say it's probably not his strongest work, but I would say it's one of his funnier films. Um, he, I think he, he's sort of a bit more distant in this movie because I think the characters themselves uh, are funny enough that he doesn't have to. In The Thin Blue Line, for example, it's all about constantly deconstructing the story over and over and over and over again from every single angle, and this film does that. But it does it to a much smaller extent. and lets the characters kind of just tell it their own way, as opposed to reenactments or um, a lot of kind of flashes, uh, which which he uses more so in something like the Thin Blue Line. Um, and there's a very much an absurdity to this film, and a timeliness to it, I guess, with uh, you know, I guess inadvertent timeliness with the whole Rupert Murdoch and the uh, and that whole thing going on right now, and the British tabloid system in general. But overall, I'd say it's a very strong film. It's funny. Uh, It's interesting. Um, He handles the material very well. It's not a boring documentary, which they often are. And it's not, I mean, even though he does use talking heads, he has a way of kind of, well, I guess with a documentary filmmaker, really you're kind of beholden to your subject. And I think what, what kind of proves a good documentary filmmaker is being able to find good subjects. And that's part of what, that's kind of like the first thing that makes you a good document filmmaker is if you have a good subject, if you can do that. And I think he did that here. It's a very interesting story, a very good subject, very funny. Characters are all very interesting. And you, don't, you never really know exactly what happens. Um, and in this case, as opposed to his other films, he kind of leaves it that way. Intentionally so, I think, because I don't think he even knows where to begin with it.
6: Yeah, I got the sense that... Um he wasn't so interested in like really, f- and I don't I don't think he could actually figure out what makes these people involved tick. Primarily, Joyce McKinney was that her name? Um, because who who can know why she does or if she did what she did? Um, I think he is more interesting to, interested though in sort of gathering facts from all perspectives and um, kind of grouping them all together which makes you not really know um, any real truth if there is any to the story um, I, I did also find this particularly relevant like you were saying with the um, tabloid scandal in Britain and it was interesting also to get perspective um, from people who work in the tabloid business who were a pretty big part of the film and sort of that part of it is almost a, um, almost, uh, the, the part of the film where they are tracking down information about Joyce McKinney was really interesting to me because of the sort of things they had to go through to find, you know, pictures of her or find out about her lifestyle or her previous, you know, acquaintances, um, which I think now would be much easier really isn't it really at that time was almost an art form to find out information about people and to frame them in such a way but now people sort of really have the option of how they want to frame themselves you know what pictures do they want to put on the internet and you know what websites they want to belong to or what dating service do they want to use like that to me pointed to something um that's a lot different now, which is just sort of the immediate access of information about people. Um, that really was, in, in her case, worked to her advantage that they didn't find out c- certain facts about her in the beginning. So it sort of gave her some time to play around with the tabloid and decide how she was going to present herself. And then she basically decided to present herself as an innocent uh, you know, just a girl in love and protecting the man that she loved. Um, but it seemed like there was something definitely deeper going on, although really I still have no idea about what exactly transpired in that cottage. but um I thought I thought it was an okay film. I didn't think it was a wonderful film um, cinematically, I guess it was sort of standard fare for him. Um, But I did enjoy some of his Marshall McLuhan-esque, you know, uh, impositions of words over people talking. Um, I thought that was really effective and funny. And that was really... I mean, aside from her strange and bizarre personality, that was really what made the humor in the film.
5: Well, and there are some... Yeah, there are some interesting stylistic choices. I mean, it almost presents it as a sort of uh, commentary on um, the idea of tabloids or of kind of the news cycle. There's a lot of shots of the camera shooting an old TV that's playing old episode, old footage of when that crime happened. He used a lot of headlines. He uses even headlines, as Kerry's saying, flashing on the screen. Uh, the name when people's names come up, it's almost in a headline way. Uses it as intertitles and other things. So he's presenting it as in a way as a sort of almost as a tabloid piece. But there's a sort of distance from it as sort of Marshall McLuhan sort of meta-meta tabloid, if that's if I can coin a new term, if that hasn't been coined already, uh, which is I think interesting and what makes Morris one of the one of the more interesting filmmakers that he is interested in sort of the deconstruction of images and things. I don't think, like Carrie said, I don't think it's his most successful film. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's a fun movie. I think it's a movie that people will enjoy. I think as far as the sh- the sort of crappy documentaries that we're subject to, particularly here in Philadelphia, The Ritz, it's definitely something worth seeing. Um, and I think overall, both of us would, would recommend you see it. And if you do like, if you haven't seen any other, Errol Morals, I would recommend seeing other stuff. Um, but, you know, as far as, especially at this time of year, that's kind of like the soulless summer movie season. Um, it's one of these, it's I guess the sort of indie equivalent of a summer movie. It's not too complicated, but it's still interesting. Um, so, I mean, I, we would both recommend that as well.
2: All right. The Committee for the Defense of Cinema now wants to let you know what you're allowed to see in the coming weeks. Our friends at the Philadelphia Cinematech are going to be playing Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Samurai on August 17th at 7.30 p.m. They're also going to be playing Rafifi by Jules Dessin on August 20th at 7.30 p.m. Both events are at Etage, 6th Street, and Bainbridge Street, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. At the University of Pennsylvania International House, they're going to be playing Fellini's Armacord on August 13th at 7 p.m. They're also going to be playing the documentary on the no-wave cinema movement, Blank City, on August 20th at 7 p.m. And this is awesome. Uh, Cinema 16.9 is going to be playing Sleeping Beauty. Their run starts August 12th. Subscribe to our blog, shootingwall.blogspot.com. There we send you a weekly update of what we deem acceptable for you to attend in Philadelphia. Also, make sure you're on our mailing list, shootingwalt.blogspot.com. Dot com slash about we will now be sending out regular emails letting you know about our events we're going to be putting on about two to three every month until the end of time the final segment of this podcast is going to be audio from our show and tell event. this was the first of many show and tells to come what we do is we get a local filmmaker to come introduce a film that has influenced them A non-public event, this is for the more serious and dedicated Shooting Wall members. The film, this time around, was Nagisa Oshima's Boy. Ben Webster introduced the film.
4: I guess I'll just speak about why I think this is a good movie to show at a Shooting Wall event. Why it really fits in with the Shooting Wall ethos. Um, I guess narratively... It really shows that you can make a movie just based around a simple story, with with well-drawn characters, um, and kind of a sense of purpose amongst your cast and crew for what you're doing. Uh, there's no, you don't really have to have any sort of highfalutin political or metaphysical concepts. Um, you don't have to have anything slick or over the top. You can just tell an interesting story, um, which might sound weird coming from me since sometimes I'm critical of that approach. But in this, in this case, it's a really interesting story and an interesting scenario, and it's done really well. Um, and the other reason I think it's really good for Shooting Wall is that it was done with a very small crew. They worked entirely on location. Um, many people in the crew did multiple things, uh, multiple tasks in making it, which I think is kind of the spirit behind Shooting Wall. Uh, If it's filmed sequentially, uh, it's really um, uh, sort of a a method that uh, perhaps was more prevalent in the 60s, but I think, you know, especially with digital equipment now, can certainly be done. It looks really good, it's widescreen, really bright color palette. Um, Yeah, that's about it.
2: Now a group discussion around Oshima's boy. If you want to check out Ben Webster's own blog, you can connect to it via our blog. It's on the left side of the page.
4: This is probably my third or fourth time seeing the movie, and I I think I like it a little bit more each time. But one thing I think is really interesting, um, I think it's kind of an easy statement to make to say that Oshima, in this film, tries to take the perspective of the boy I think, you know, that's very clear. But what's I think it's something interesting with the way the film is structured, is that it has this very open structure. So, uh, events happen, things happen sequentially, but they're not sequenced in a way that it um, seems like it's constructing a, or forcing any sort of narrative arc. And I think that's kind of the way a child sees the world: things happen, and it's not. A, and they happen in a row but it's not entirely clear why and this is usually because um, what's happening in their lives is being dictated by the goals of the adults around them and so this is like the kind of cl- classical way of constructing a narrative in a film is that you have characters who are real, psychologically realistic and they're oriented towards a certain goal and this is what provides the dramatic tension in the film and obviously like the art art cinema genre what kind of marks the genre is that it breaks from that sort of uh goal-centered realism and that's i think it's definitely what oshima is doing specifically here to force the perspective of the boy and i think that's what makes makes the film like gives it this tension that never really seems um forced obviously once they go once they arrive in hokkaido there's this incident which kind of it's probably like the only real incident in the film that crystallizes Uh, any sort of narrative arc around the maybe accidental death of this little girl and the the red boot and the sequence where it goes from black and white to color, which seems to be this sort of uh, the focal point of the entire film. Uh, So I really admire that. I also really admire how um, the cinematography is very subdued but very clear and the only time that there's like a rapid montage is the scenes of the, the 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 staged accidents, and I think it's done very well to kind of like replicate both what it would be like to be in that situation as the person pretending to be hit and the driver, where it's sort of it's you, you can't it's unclear exactly what happened. Uh, but other than that, it's this very um, quiet cinematography that's that at times is really. Uh, haunting and beautiful and like great use of natural lighting uh and the sound is also really interesting i mean this is oshima i think really takes after godard in this way that he's not afraid to, to totally separate the the soundtrack and the image so certain points there's where well, you might expect there to be important dialogue instead there's you know he'll have like like howling wind or this kind of ambient music that seems to be structured around the sound of like screeching tires or something so that's what I thought
5: um, yeah as far as the narrative goes there are a lot of interesting sort of almost jarring cuts like where it seems like it'll be leading in one way and then all of a sudden it cuts back to almost a, norm- a normality in a way and i think it's you know very much structured like i guess as a child would see it as you were saying but i think what's so interesting about it is is the framing and the use of the the cinemascope in it in that a lot of the frames are really crowded they're really crowded with things and a lot of times he places his characters far at the people are on the far end and then everything else happens here or there's a great scene on the boat where in the foreground there's this really tall red object. There's the there's the kid sitting in the back and there's a Japanese flag in the back. It's sort of this great use of depth that he has throughout the whole thing. This Using the whole frame and not just centering people, but putting them on the edges of the frame while at the same time having all these various objects within it. A lot of use of Japanese flags. Any chance there's a use of a Japanese flag it's there. A lot of use of reds. And even in the snowman scene i mean maybe it's a stretch but it almost mimics a japanese flag in a way cuz it's all white and then the one red boot right in the middle so i think i mean i think that as with a lot of oshima it is a very japanese film and it's about japanese things uh it goes to a lot of different japanese cities it's referencing you know the japanese flag the war etc uh you know not being too familiar with japan or uh, I think there is a big difference between the culture in a lot of cities there uh not being too familiar with it I think that 's something interesting that I think he 's dealing with that i 'm not too familiar with but um it's It definitely feels that there's a lot of stuff in it about Japan, but it 's a much more subdued than some of his other works let 's say like uh what 's the one where the uh the Korean immigrants come across huh. Death by hanging? Uh, there's, there's that one's it three resurrected drunks as well, or, um, you know, uh, what else? Uh, anyway, I can't, I can't think right now, but he, you know, this is a bit more, so it, it's a bit more straightforward. And I think it's through, uh, the use of symbols and through framing and through, uh, these things that he's kind of creating this kind of almost a, almost a very subdued political message. Cause he was a very political filmmaker, but this seems to on the surface to be a very, slim political film but I think underneath it has a lot of politics in it that I think would be interesting to explore Um, anyway Um.
6: (laughs) I don't like having to hold it no that's worse (laughs) Um, after just having seen Weekend two weeks ago I don't know I couldn't get my mind off of some of the similarities, plot-wise, that um, especially the idea of you know accidents involving cars, like the sort of symbol of of middle-class wealth, and we're going to use that against you. We're going to make money off of your wealth. Um, I don't know. I think that's sort of a reoccurring theme in films from this period, a, in a, in many countries that I've yeah. that I've seen films in. Yeah.
5: Well, you know, they, used to, they called Oshima the Gadar of the East, and then Oshima used to say jokingly that Gadar was the Oshima of the West. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a lot of, a lot of people compare the two filmmakers. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, yeah, I I, mean, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, there is a certain, yeah, I think there is a lot of things you could say about Gadar and Oshima in well, this I, period.
4: I think during this period also, during, during the the cycle of struggle. I'll let you get back to your comments. This one. I think that's a really interesting comparison because they're made about the same time. It's, I mean, we don't know if Ocean had seen weekend or whatever, uh, but there's this renewed interest in kind of marginal, marginals, societal marginals or the lumpen proletariat, which I think you'd ca- characterize these people as, or the criminal class or the working class, but not in a heroic sense like you had with Italian neorealism. Um, more a sense coming from just this like validated hatred of the bourgeoisie, and I think it's really interesting that you bring up the kind of bourgeois car culture as this <laughs> kind of like terrifying, destructive uh, force that uh, you know obviously these are not the, the cannibal hippies of weekend, but that is this kind of a uh, target. For for the marginal uh, marginals in, yeah. in society, it's yeah. really what yeah. makes oh.
6: people marginal in a sense? Even today, not transportation. Yeah, I I can't get there. You know, I can't be a part of that society without a car.
5: Yeah, and it seems particularly in Japanese cinema at this time, like what you're talking about, especially like not only Oshima but Imamura especially just the dregs of society, and they're always these very grotesque kind of characters. Um, but at the same time, it's this comment about uh, kind of not only the perseverance, but sort of the going after or the uncomfortableness of the marginal characters. And I, Well,
4: at least the marginals aren't hypocrites, right. like the bourgeoisie exactly. and the ruling class are. Exactly,
5: yeah. They sort of know that they're doing wrong, but they do it because they have to, and they know that they have to, and it's, and it's yeah. But that's
6: the thing about the kid. Does... does... Does the child character have any moral you know, does it know if it's doing right or wrong? Does it have any moral compass in I, the film?
4: I think that it, uh, I mean about I mean the confused worldview of the child because um, he's stuck between this mother and the mother and father and Neither one of them are really his mother or father. I mean, the father is his biological father, but does not... Just exploits him. Yeah. Um, and the mother is not his biological mother. Um, but he sees the his family dynamic replicated in the world. Like, when he sees those two older boys bully the younger boy with the book, it's shaking down it's exactly what his father expects of him. So he's seeing this replication. And I think, like... Uh, Oshima's very clever because he takes an innocent thing like uh, little boys in in Japan being fascinated with science fiction and it's rendered a lot more sinister and dark because it's uh, the boy has these fantasies in this world of like real unsettled confusion, moral confusion uh, that Oshima suggests if you don't kind of have this um this mooring, then not only is right and wrong confused, but reality and unreality in a way that's not just like child's but imagination. As,
6: but as the as the child approaches death and as it comes into mm-hmm. contact with real violence, then I think the character begins to have well, kills, what you would call... He kills
4: the Andromeda man.
6: Yeah, exactly. sort of begins to have a moral... I think that's true of everybody
3: but
4: then, he, but then, at the end he also defends the father he tries to help the father escape
3: it's significant I think that when he does talk about the, you know throwing themselves getting getting in front of cars to scam people or whatever um, he refers to it as work are we working today you know I think that that's, that's significant too but yeah,
4: I mean, I think you can read it as a critique of uh, work as just kind of like a scam, yeah. you know.
6: Everybody's working, scamming like someone,
3: putting your body in in uh, in the path of danger, and learning how to to do that without actually getting hurt, um, yeah. and to um, have fake bruises and the right speech and. Um, saying the right things in the right tone to the
5: doctor, um, that's work. Yeah, it even goes back to the father who was injured in war and as if that's some sort of like, you know, also almost like this tradition of violence as something noble to pursue uh, or something like that, I don't know. I don't know about noble. Well, not noble, but right. Something that sort of, I guess, not noble, but, you know, something that he had learned himself.
4: Yeah, I think the angle of him being a veteran is really important. Um, I mean, it's not just this kind of, like, pacifistic argument, but it is this sense that, uh, I mean, I think it's important at the end. It, it's it, can, it kind of, the first time I saw it, it kind of read as, like, oh, well, this is kind of a sloppy... Not not well thought out ending, but I think it's important that they do that documentary bit where they describe the the childhood and the life of, of these characters. Um, I think when you're talking about the kind of latent political content of the film, I think that's an it's an it's an important point Oshima is making here. That well, what is the kind of lot of the kind of lumpen proletariat or working class in Japan? Well, you go off to you go off to fight and you're. <laughs> This guy didn't really seem physically harmed, but psychologically kind of mangled. And then you come back, and uh, if you can't find work, well, you still have to survive. Um, and I think it really kind of looks into the future a bit about uh, kind of the decla- even the decline of like productive work. Mm-hmm. You know, when there when there's not enough factory jobs, uh, you can't people don't make anything anymore because of automation or whatnot. What what is there left to do? than just kind of. Throw <laughs> yourself in front of cars and like try to get a little portion of the wealth that is out there, mm-hmm. even if you're not creating anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Maybe that's kind of my own political um, sympathies overcoding. The film.
6: I thought it was kind of interesting for 1966 for him to for the father to put out there his psychological wounds because an American film that was just beginning to be a real yeah, really like, prevalent, it really wasn't until Vietnam that that was something that the public and filmmakers were addressing on film in America. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Michelle? Oh, wow, everything's been sad right now. <laughs> wow. um, I was just going to comment on... it's <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was just going to comment on the... Just the character study as far as like watching how, like what's been said before, um, how everything's viewed in the eyes of a child and how he's just, he tries so desperately to please both of his parents, but he really doesn't have any parents. Then he tries to be on his own. He realizes that just, he can't be on his own because there's really nothing out there for him. But I just, I thought it was really poignant at the end where he finally kind of gave himself up um when the he he said yes you know I have been here Um, all of his life he seems like he's he's tried to defend the life uh, what his parents have provided for him so much but it's fascinating how they just kept running and running and running as much as the wife tried to leave she just um, like they all needed each other like this criminal life like they just had to keep going and even when they were caught they just I don't know, I don't know enough about the actual true story to go any further with that, but, <laughs> yeah.
6: It is kind of interesting, too, when, the, you know, they, like, start accumulating money and the dad's like, you think 600,000 yens is enough? Like. Right, she just wants to settle down. <laughs> like when, when are you going like to be able to get out of being in that group of society, like, such an arbitrary...
5: Or even mm-hmm. the idea of doing it so that you can have like a a normal life, right. doing like this thing to oh, but eventually we'll settle down. Because in
3: the meantime, they're staying at places that they call expensive. Yeah.
4: A- so yeah, that's and also. using the money up kind of as they go. Yeah. yeah but, well, I guess I'm going to introduce. But I really admire this because it's really. Making a film just based on something you read in the newspaper and I mean this is very common especially in like the, the new wave French new wave this is a very common practice as well um, but I think you know sometimes people kind of beat themselves over the head trying to think of a novel new idea for a movie and uh, how to have the right mixture of comedy and romance and action or whatnot uh, the uh, I think this movie is a sh- shining example you just need like a confident crew yeah. and uh, a th- thoughtful um, presentation of characters and doesn't doesn't hurt to have like to really hit the road and get all these great uh, atmospheric location shots but uh, I I think that's why I find the film most inspiring because um, often I think you know those of us who who try to make movies you get really caught up when you're when you're on the level of conceptualizing um, characters and events and and plot and all this. and uh, There's this great purity to the film where uh, it seems so um, rich, yet the actual story, if you you were to tell someone what the the movie was about, it's a one-sentence description. Uh, So I really admire that.
3: It wasn't until the end when, um, or toward the end, when they showed the uh, the newspaper print about how the the parents were indicted and how they had their child do this and it was like at that point it struck me like oh this it would be very easy to make a film like this and just portray the child as a victim as like an abused child you know but it doesn't he doesn't take that tack. so I think his uh, kind of dispelling with the 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 idea of the the child the son or whatever as um, uh, acting as being forced into this you know this uh, violence I mean or the potential for violence or whatever it's you know he's also kind of compl- complicit in it you know I, he does so have he does
4: have he does seem to have some agency in the in the in the yeah, movie yeah yeah I um, mean, very confused going, and not like he, total, he, there, but I you know, think there, like there is agency. The
3: where he goes in front of the car even when she says no, yeah, you
5: know. Cool. Um, or when, uh, I think, it's, it's at night and she's kind of pregnant and she doesn't get hit by the car mm-hmm. and she's on the floor and he kind of takes the initiative. Exactly,
6: you know? exactly.
5: So, yeah, there definitely is, but yeah. is that
6: agency or is that, it's a game? Well, I mean that's it, the thing with the no, kid. It might be, yeah, it totally might
3: be, but
4: because it, it's, but not it's not. out is a contrast to a way a lot of filmmakers might handle this, where it's just yeah, exactly.
5: Yeah, exactly.
4: A sad tale power, about the about how, how we need to save the children in our society. Yeah. 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 this is not what's right. going but on. That, exactly. That's
3: not what he wants you to feel. I think it
6: does empower the character because, I mean, kids. Can function basically in any environment you raise them in. You know, like they'll sort of mold to whatever you, you're the parents doing. And I think that's sort of what he's trying to say too. It's, we don't give them enough credit, perhaps. Mm-hmm.
2: Est-ce que tu en enfin, plus que je
4: sais
2: Est-ce que vous aviez l'impression d'être la création de Godard Oh, ça, je ne sais pas. Invité
0: aujourd'hui, Anna Karina. Voici une le chef de Godard. Je ne sais pas vite, combien de
4: temps que tu <rire>
2: This is the end of the first podcast. We would thank you for listening all the way through, but then again, gratitude gets you nowhere. Shooting Wall is a revolutionary cinematic organization. We emerged out of a historical and socioeconomic analysis of the film industry and of the influence film theory has had or hasn't had on the industry. We came to realize that theory without action gets you nowhere. The failure of film theorists to think tactically and strategically has relegated cinema to the deplorable state it is in in the modern. It is not theorists' fault. Art theory has generally been a non-influence. We aim to do something different. What are we doing? We're putting on events where we showcase the best in cinema, locally, internationally, and historically. Putting countless hours into theoretical research of the art of film and the film industry through our quarterly print magazine, which we put out all over the city of Philadelphia. Bringing people together to discuss theory at reading groups. Helping local filmmakers make their films and get them seen. We are working to bring cinematic adherents together through our website, ShootingWall.com, where we can connect filmmakers and upload their films. We are updating our blog, ShootingWall.blogspot.com, daily. We are propagandizing the best film exhibition in the area, propagating about local film and also through our events, We aim to bring back the collective experience that is lacking for cinephiles in the age of almost zero distribution of quality films. In short, we are giving our blood, sweat, sleep, and tears to cinema. What are you doing? Join Shooting Wall. If you want to help the revolutionary cinematic organization's rebirth of film, email shootingwallzine at gmail.com. Your host today was me, Carl Starkweather. The theme song was done by Robert Muggy. The Gene Wilder metal song was done by John Kingston. You're listening to it right now. The two other songs in the program were The Fig and Anna Karina at a Bar by the band The Death of Anna Karina. And the other song was Rise and Fall, Ruins.